After weeks working in committee and behind the scenes, Senator Bill Eigel's tax overhaul legislation got relatively quick passage in the General Assembly's upper chamber. It was a surprise to many people that legislation this significant to the state's fiscal future managed to get approval in a chamber known for filibusters and drama. The Weldon Springs Republican joins us next on the Politically Speaking podcast to break down why his bill ended up passing and to delve in more about the future of tax-cutting legislation in the 2018 session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, a political reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And returning to our show for the fourth time, you're joining the Four Timers Club. You get a jacket and a hat. <laughs> and, a, and, if you're, and if you're not good, you get an indictment. Our Four Timers Club has kind of a rough history. Uh, with that in mind, our guest today is... Bill Eigel, State Senator. For the 23rd District, which takes in a portion of St. Charles County, basically. The eastern half of St. Charles County, yes. A, a, the, the beautiful half. Of, That's right. Uh, the, That's... the western half is is unseemly. I'm, well, I'm teasing. <laughs> I don't know about that, but, I, it, but I, I certainly am partial to the eastern half. I, I'm yeah. teasing. Bob, <laughs> Senator Bob Onder, your your, part, your district is, is, is just fine. Um, <laughs> it, I, I, I actually asked you to be on the show before your tax cut bill passed in very quick fashion this week, initially passed. It still has to go through final passage. So I just want to thank myself for having the foresight to, <laughs> to have you on, because um, we're going to be talking about that, and we're also going to be talking about the governor's situation. But before we get into the reaction to the passage of your bill, I want you to go and walk us through what is actually in, in, the, bill. in the bill sure, uh, piece by piece. Sure. So th- there's, there's two main points and takeaways that I would say about uh, Senate Bill 617. That's the Missouri Economic Relief Act. First, this is going to be the largest tax cut in the history of the state of Missouri. It's going to reduce the top rate from 5.9, where it is today, down to 4.45% uh, when it's fully phased in in, the, in a few years. We are doing some things in the bill to help pay for some of those cuts. We're uh, adjusting some of our corporate rules. We're adjusting uh, we're allowing for additional taxes to be collected on out-of-state corporations that have found way to skirt uh, Missouri income tax law. And we have adjusted uh, some of the deductions on the individual side, note, most notably the federal income tax deduction for high-income earners. So we have a lot of paid-fors in there, and uh, as has been getting a lot of press this week, we also increased the fuel tax by $0.08. Cents. Now, the fuel tax increase kind of leads me into the second part of the bill, which is this has become also a major infrastructure spending bill. Uh, Because of the increase to the fuel tax, it'll put about $2.5 billion into our roads and bridges over the next 10 years. Now, I I think I've I don't know if I've been on this show or others in, in, in recent past where I've, I've often been an opponent of raising the fuel tax. And as a standalone measure, I'm still an opponent of raising the fuel tax. But I think in this case, as part of a broader overall tax reform measure that lowers the tax burden on Missouri taxpayers, I'm supportive. 
The cost of what we're going to be doing in, with the respect to the fuel tax is about $250 million a year. But the cuts, when fully phased in, represent about $1.2 billion in income tax cuts. So I think that's a great, I think that's a great trade for... And is it $0.08 cents or $0.10? Cents? It's $0.08, cents, uh, but the, we do allow for a CPI adjustment for a few years. Okay, right. okay. I wanted to it make was that clear. Ten cents. It was $0.10 cents in a previous version. When we brought it back out onto the floor this week, we amended it down to $0.08 cents and limited the CPI. We took that step after I took the temperature of uh, some of the members of the body when it first came out on the floor. Now, I want to make something – I want to get – I want to ask a question for, uh, before we get into the details. From talking with you earlier in the year, I don't think you ever claimed that even the original version of this was quote unquote revenue neutral. Mm -hmm. You clearly had some things aimed at making it less costly, but I just, because the governor's plan claimed to be revenue neutral, I don't think you were ever claiming that. This is going to cost general revenue some money even with the increases in the fuel tax. How is that, much? Is that correct, first of all? So uh, when we talked last time, I think we were on version four or five yes. of, of the, the bill. And, and when I described the bill in that format, that was correct. There, there was a, a hit at a cost to, fit to general revenue. In the version that we have today, uh, I think that in the short term, it is general revenue neutral. I think the cost is actually about $8 million, which is which is as close as you can get to zero in, in the scope of a $28 billion budget. But over the long term? Over the long term, when it's phased in, uh, the, there are additional triggers that will go into effect, but they'll only go into effect if revenues have increased by a certain amount in the year prior. So, <laughs> for example, what, what that means is there are four more 0.1 triggers to the income tax rate that would go in the next time in, in any year in which we had $150 million more in revenue with the year prior. The cost of that 0.1 trigger is about $85 million. So you're taking an $85 million cut if you've gotten at least $150 million more. The idea behind that is, are you cutting? Yes, you are cutting because you're cutting future revenue growth, but the increase that you have to see before you get that cut pays for that cut moving forward. Now, is that increase, in addition to <clears throat> the increases that is needed for the phase-in of the current tax cut that is still being phased in? No, this this bill completely, um, it, it, the, it the, how shall I say this, the, the previous 509, which was the original tax cut, right. would have been 0.1 cuts down to 5.5%. This bill takes the income tax rate in the first year down to five and a quarter percent and then allows for additional triggers to take it down further. Mm -hmm. So you won't have a scenario where you're having two tenths of a, of a. Yeah, well, that's what I want to know. So so that you don't have to hit two triggers. No, we don't have to hit two triggers. We, we hit each year. There's a trigger for if you have $150 million more each year, you get 0.1 off the tax cut, just like what we have now. Yes. And there is a trigger relative to the Quill decision uh, at the Supreme Court in the event that we're able to start collecting much more internet sales tax than we have before. So, yeah, in fact, well, yeah, the internet sales, I'm sorry, Jason, yeah. but, but but the internet sales tax is kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, so, because right now the state doesn't really get much from it, does it? I mean, is it pretty no, much cooperative? Uh, I mean, it, we get very little from it. In fact, there are provisions and changes in the in the bill that we have that would allow us to join the Streamlined Sales Tax Consortium that would set up the framework, the nexus, for us to be able to collect taxes. However, we wouldn't be able to collect those taxes using that nexus unless uh, the Supreme Court overturns the Quill decision. And does it also eliminate the 2% discount that businesses get for turning in their, their taxes on time? It does not eliminate eliminate that okay. that bonus. Okay. So 
And the, the only other question I have to the revenue neutral part, is it that $8 million figure that you had on the first year, mm-hmm. is that because the decline in general revenue from decreasing the corporate and income taxes to that rate is kind of made up by the increase in the fuel tax. Is that how you get that that no, point? That's no, that's outside of the impact of the fuel tax. Okay. Yeah, because the fuel tax money is segregated. Mm-hmm. So if you once you in, once you add the fuel tax, the short term number will actually be slightly positive. Right. So uh, what we're seeing over the long term is once those those additional cuts are phased in, that's where you truly see the cuts to future revenue. Okay. So that's where in the in the scope of the bill, we've crafted something that can be revenue neutral in the short term, but still is a cut as we move forward over the next five years. So, and before we get to the reaction to this, um, there's been kind of some assumption that the governor's tax plan has been completely cast aside by people like you and uh, also Speaker Pro Tem Elijah Har's plan. But it seems like some elements of his plan, for example, the streamlined sales tax or cutting the corporate and income taxes are actually pretty similar. It seems like there there does seem to be some elements that the governor wants that are in this plan. There are also things the governor didn't particularly like, like the uh, increase for the gas tax that are in it. Is it kind of sort of a mixed uh, mix of ideas, so to speak, between the legislature and the governor here? I, I certainly think most of most of the elements in the bill right now were originally a part of one tax bill or another. It could have been my bill, it could have been Senator Koenig's bill, it could have been Senator Searpoy's bill, which was the governor's plan. We did, there is one item in particular, and that's the corporate apportionment language that we took, we did take from the governor's bill. So there are things from the governor's bill that we incorporated into what we have before the body now. Uh, certainly, there are some things that we didn't take from the governor's bill. And like you said, I know he's not a big fan of the fuel tax, just like I haven't been. But when you have an opportunity to lower the tax burden on Missouri taxpayers, I think you take it. Now, um, one of the rumblings that has been going on for several years, but especially since the since it became clear you were going to have some sort of tax cut proposal, was like uh, Senate Leader Ron Richard and some others were very concerned about whether or not we might be cutting too much, and they're pointing to Kansas, where they did all those cuts a few years ago, and then they had to restore everything. In fact, uh, this is a clip of Senator Richard yesterday uh, responding to reporter questions about how your bill passed so quickly. You know, he worked extremely hard. Um, apparently, he had enough buy-in that people believe that uh, it's going to be in the best interest. I happen to take the other part of it. I'm not sure. I'm still cautious about it. We'll see what the fiscal note is. So you could be a no vote depending on what that was. I was a no on the voice vote. Yeah. You think once the fiscal note comes back, there might be a little bit more debate when it uh, comes up a third read? I'm sure that fiscal note is going to be a choker. So I think you probably have read about the Senate President Pro Tem's comments in the newspaper. He's only one person. Um, but, but he is a powerful person. He, even though he is the Senate leader, he probably doesn't have supreme power to, you know, prevent your bill from passing. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if some Democrats and even some Republicans maybe were a bit more robust in their debate when the bill comes to final passage. What do you make of uh, Senator Richard's comments? Well, I got to I got to admit, unfortunately, I was uh, unpleasantly surprised by his comments. You know, I don't think that I've ever heard uh, the man that I voted to be pro tem of the Missouri Senate 
attack one of the priorities and bills of major legislation of one of his own members. Uh, I think that's pretty extraordinary. I've been here a year and a half, I haven't heard that. I haven't heard the pro tem of the Senate attack one of his own members' bills. So that's obviously disappointing. Uh, when he speaks to the fiscal note, you know, we've been talking about the fiscal note for the past six months. And the reason it took so long to get to the floor is because we wanted to be very cautious and reasonable and thoughtful about making sure that we weren't uh, having uh, the kind of problems that Kansas did back a few years ago, and and quite frankly, if the fiscal well, notes, still has Kansas still has. I mean, the fallout continues. Sorry, and 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 quite frankly, I you know if if we, if those concerns weren't addressed, this bill wouldn't have made it out of committee. Uh, Ron Richard wouldn't have taken it in as a bill uh, to be put on the calendar. So I think we did a great job. I, I was really surprised after all the effort from so many parties to go into that to to hear the pro tem really uh, kind of take a lash at it. That was very surprising and disappointing. Now, um, some of it could be just because, well, for one thing, he's from the western part of the state, so they are closer to watching the debacle that's been going on in Kansas. Um, he was clearly, in his comments, concerned about the fiscal note, um, which is the impact. I mean, you know, what's laid out as the impact. Um, what do you see the fiscal note being by the time final passages and B, what happens in the House now? Well, I've, I've had a lot of good conversations with uh, Representative Haar on the House bill. There's a lot to like about the House bill. I think there, there's only a couple of the, the bigger differences I think that we're going to have to resolve. I think there's a real preference in the Senate to focus on a fuel tax versus mm -hmm. fees uh, being raised on license plates. The reason for that is, you know, when you raise fees on license plates and driver's license, Missouri citizens pay 100 percent of those costs. If you raise the fuel tax, those costs are shared amongst out-of-state drivers that are also uh, doing damage and wear and tear to the road. So I think there's a a very strong preference for the fuel tax on the Senate side. The other thing, of course, is uh, is we want to see the additional reductions uh, under the triggers that we've set forth in the Senate version to make sure that this is indeed a tax cut. So uh, I think there's a tremendous amount to, to like about the House version. I look forward to, I think, I think they're going to work on passage this week. And I think we're going to have a very, I don't foresee any problems that are not overcomable uh, between the House and the Senate at this point. Now, Missouri has one of the lowest um, fuel tax rates in the country, mm -hmm. and that's been that way for ages. Why do you think there is so much resistance to increasing the fuel tax when most other states have a higher fuel tax, A, and B, Missouri's, you know, a, a being kind of a key state in, in cars and trucks getting across from one part of the country mm -hmm. to the other? And there's a threat of toll roads. Mm -hmm. So I'm, with all those factors together, I'm curious about why you think there has been such a resistance, including among yourself, mm -hmm. to raising the fuel tax. Because regardless of what level the fuel tax is, if you look at all the taxes that citizens are paying right now, we're sending a record amount of money to Jefferson City. We've never had uh, $28 billion go into Jefferson City before. We're going to set a record amount of spending this year. We're going to send a record amount of spending last year. We've had six years in a row of record level spending. And so I think that the appetite from the everyday citizen to have any kind of raise in any tax is, is just not there. And, and I agree with that. I, I think that there's places we can look for in our budget to do a better job prioritizing something that my constituents consistently tell me is a priority. So the idea of a tax increase is not going anywhere. So I don't know if you subscribe to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, but uh, your picture standing in front of a train was on there today with the headline, Editorial Missouri Senate Makes the Same Insane Tax Cut Mistake, Hopes for a Different Result. And it was basically making the argument, similar to what Ron Richards said, but also what our next uh, clip speaker has said, that 
it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to, to cut taxes when it's been unsuccessful in places like Kansas and Missouri still has a lot of needs when it comes to various social services and education uh, situations. This is Representative Greg Razor. He's a Democrat from Kansas City. He was on our show when a different version of your bill was here and also before the House restored higher education cuts that he's going to mention. Here's what he had to say about uh, the tax cutting attitude in Jefferson City. You know, you hear the governor, you hear Senator Eigel, others talk uh, about tax cuts as, you know, a conservative approach to governing. It's not conservative. It's irresponsible. It's simply irresponsible to advocate for more cuts when we haven't seen the fruition of the last round of cuts they've made. Uh, I said on the budget committee, uh, the governor's recommending another 10 percent across the board cut to higher education after last year's 10 percent cut. Uh, our institutions of higher education can't keep absorbing uh, these cuts. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say, well, it's a $27 billion budget. Surely you can find a few hundred million. Well, that, that's a nice soundbite until you actually understand how the budget of Missouri works and realize that there's only about a third of that that we can manipulate. That's the third that pays for K-12, for higher education, for our social services, for our state employees, who, by the way, are the lowest paid in the country. Uh, we have responsibilities as a state government. So you're probably going to hear that type of argument a lot, mm-hmm. even even not only in the House, but when it comes up for final passage. Um, how do you respond to people like Representative Fraser? Well, uh, you know, w- what he describes as irresponsible, I think it's irresponsible to have uh, ballooning budgets uh, increasing every single year to record levels, taking more and more out of the paychecks of a Missouri workers every single year without some sort of restraint and without some sort of uh, relief to go to those family households. You know, I think it's ridiculous that you know we have a tax code here in Missouri that, uh, unlike places like Texas and Florida and Tennessee that are growing rapidly in terms of their population, our growth is stagnant. The reason our growth is stagnant is because we charge you six percent to do business here, and those states don't charge you any percent on your income. So, uh, I think that that's incredibly irresponsible when clearly there are other states doing business in a better manner. Um, when it comes to Kansas, uh, you know, we're nobody. I haven't, nobody I know is is defending the way Kansas did did their tax cut back in 2012 and 2013. But I tell you, there are a lot of states that have cut their income taxes since then and have learned the lessons that uh, were are still ongoing over in Kansas. If you look at Arkansas and Indiana and South, or excuse me, North Carolina. Uh, Iowa is taking a look at an income taxes this year. New York State has cut their income taxes. So I think states are coming to the realization that moving away from the income tax is the way to spur growth in their state. And if you spur growth in your state, that's going to raise far more tax dollars in the long term than spending more money that I think is spent a lot of times inefficiently. Now, um, just playing devil's advocate, and in the case of spurring growth, does it become sort of a larger situation of uh, the problems that St. Louis County has where you have all these municipalities that offer tax breaks to get businesses and basically what they're doing, they're crossing city lines. They're basically not that much extra business. They're just shifting around. So um, do you run into that nationally where it's not necessarily more business, but business moving from one state to another? I mean, how, how do you 
Well, I, I think that, that there's there's a difference between corporate welfare, which is trying to develop policies that, that benefit one or a few particular businesses at the cost of all the others, and then setting an economic environment that applies to everyone, which is what I'm talking about doing for tax policy. You're right. We, you know, we have one of the largest corporate welfare uh, engines in the entire country, and we're trying to incentivize, incentivize a lot of firms to move here, but it doesn't work. Look at our population. It's not growing. But if you look at states that have created a economic policy that affects everyone in their tax code, Texas, Nevada, Washington State. Uh, these, are, these are states that create a good environment for everyone, which spurs people to want to move there. And when people move there with their jobs and their businesses and their investments and their entrepreneurial skills, that's what spurs growth. And when you spur growth, more tax revenues is, is the natural product of that. So this was probably a I don't want to say a rare policy interjection in this session because there have been other instances where there's been major policy debates. But you and I both know that the dominant thing that's been occurring has been the uncertainty over the governor and his future. Now, this, as, as we've talked about with other shows, the Senate doesn't have a direct role in whether the governor stays or goes. They, until further down the road. Until further down the road. If he does get impeached, you get to pick the eminent jurists that end up trying him. But Clearly, there has been some tension between the Senate and the governor when it comes to appointments. And I think that's where the flashpoint has been. So just generally, like, what have you made? What what have you made of this entire situation and how it's affected legislative business? Because while there has been progress on things like tax cuts and even on vexing issues like utilities as well, it, it seems like when it comes to appointments to very important boards and commissions, that's where the governor's uh, political and legal woes have, have made an impact. Well, you know, let, I, I'll, let me agree with something that Ron Richard said yesterday at his press conference, and that is the ship of state in the legislature is sailing right along. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think we've been able to work through more bills at this point than we did all of last year. And so from that perspective, uh, the governor and his troubles have, have really not affected the work that we're trying to do. Uh, we've gotten a, a major tax bill. We've gotten a ut or, to move to this point. We've gotten a utilities bill over the finish line. We've gotten a lot of the priorities of the members over the finish line. And I expect more big things to come. So, you know, part of the reason, you know, unfortunately, I, I've always encouraged the governor to do more to build bridges with the legislature. And the fact that uh, we're so disconnected and independent from him from that right now because he hasn't done that, I think, has sort of insulated us from some of his troubles. But it's also lessened the, the role of the governor, which I'm not sure is necessarily a good thing either. So uh, my hope is that he's going to find a way uh, to uh, begin reaching out to, to legislators and building those bridges because you're right, the tensions, this is not a coincidental effect that we see every now and then and as far as the tension with the Senate. It seems to be an ongoing thing. And regardless of what happens to him with regards to these scandals, I'd like to see him do a better job building relationships inside the Missouri Senate. I think he's going to find his remaining years in office very difficult if he can't make simple outreaches to the people that ultimately want to help his agenda. Now, there's several commissions that are either short members or there's been controversy over the members mm -hmm. because he pushed people off, put people on that agreed with him, particular viewpoints. And so you've got, you know, the higher ed board, you've got uh, the Veterans Commission, and now, I mean, this is for junkies, but that's what our podcast is about, the Missouri <laughs> Ethics Commission, which governs spending and a lot of other stuff dealing with uh, campaigns in the state where they can't really enforce anything because they now are short 
they don't they don't have a quorum. And, and by I, the way, it's Desi. It's the it's yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's well, the State Board Desi. of Education. Yeah, but yeah. continue. Sorry, uh, but uh, but so how? I mean, are you hearing any names being floated, or do you think the governor is just going to leave? Let's say the Ethics Commission um, hobbled. And here we are in an election year. He's not on the ballot, but a lot of other people are on this year. No, I think we need more engagement from the governor. Uh, you know, he, the governor called me about a month and a half ago and promised that he was going to work with me on tax reform to make sure we get a tax cut for the Missouri people. Haven't heard from him since. Uh, you know, the e examples that you just gave uh, with, with respect to all the boards and commission, the Board of Education, these are yet more examples where normally a Republican governor with super majorities in both legislatures ought to have a pretty straightforward time getting these boards filled. It amazes me, and I think it amazes a lot of my colleagues in the Senate that he hasn't been able to find a way to work with people on his own party. And, you know, again, that points to the fact that uh, the, we, these are the results of his non-efforts to really build bridges over in the Missouri Senate. My door is always open for the governor. Uh, we, and that would, that would be true whether it's a Republican governor or a Democrat governor. My door is always open. My, the people of my district sent me down to Jefferson City to work with this governor. I d have tried repeatedly to reach out to the governor's office. Uh, he hasn't been uh, responsive to that. And, and certainly that's frustrating. And I think that's frustration that's been felt across uh, my colleagues in the Senate and the House. But that can that can end right now uh, if he would if he would accept some of those relationships. Now there's been some instances though where he's kept boards and commissions vacant on purpose. One of them is the Missouri Housing Development Commission, mm -hmm. um, primarily because they don't have a quorum right now, and that means there's really no possible way to reverse the state low-income housing tax credit freeze that occurred in December. I'm going to play a clip now from Jason Crowell, who is one of the people that engineered that very controversial move. And he's reacting to when the Senate basically prevented the governor from appointing people to the board during the session. The whole issue of Missouri housing development and state, not federal, there's a difference between state and federal VITEC, was settled in December. This game's already over. So, I, I mean, as, as I said publicly at the time, the reason I resigned and went off in December, my work was done. It is now squarely on the General Assembly, not whether or not they're going to confirm these citizens. I mean, and why anyone would hold up a citizen like this is just, is just childish and petty. Now, clearly, former Senator Crowell is a, is a big fan of the governor. He was also obviously a big fan of what the what the MHDC did last December by freezing the low-income housing tax credits. I know that a lot of people were really, really angry about that decision, and there's even been some conjecture that one of the driving motivating factors of getting Greitens out of office is to make sure that Mike Parson can become governor, the and, reverse, lieutenant governor. and reverse that decision. First of all, what do you make of Senator Kral's comments, and have you heard whether the low-income housing tax credit issue is a motivating factor to get Greitens out of office from even some of your Republican colleagues right now. Well, first of all, I'd say about Senator Crowell, him and I actually have the same perspective on low-income tax credits. We'd like to see a pretty big reform of the uh, tax credit program. Mm -hmm. I think I think there are actually ways that we can make the amount of money that we have to outlay in the tax credit programs less, but maybe get similar bang for our buck as it is. So there's a good deal to be had here. And so I'd like to see that happen. I think Senator Crowell wants to see something like, like that done as well. Uh, we actually tried to address that in the tax reform bill, but we just couldn't come to a consensus, so we had to take it out. Um, 
as far as, uh, again, you're identifying another area where uh, with super majorities in the legislature, this should be pretty straightforward for a, a, a governor of the same party to work through and find some good compromise. But uh, I, I haven't heard from the governor in over a month and a half. I know my colleagues haven't heard from the governor in quite some time. And there's no way to get around the disengagement that we're seeing. Is it a distraction from uh, the, the, the scandals that are going on? I can't tell you that, but I can tell you that before the scandals broke, he wasn't calling my phone either. So it's, uh, you know, I think that we want to try to address that, and I think we will. Why do you think that is? I said, because I don't want to get into the scandals because we, we, we talk about that all the time. But the, the impact here, the fact that he is not engaged, which he was not engaging before this stuff broke on the night that he gave the State of the State address. I mean, as you just said, he hadn't reached out to you. That really has... I think, surprise people since he's been in office for over a year that he's not uh, reaching out or saying, okay, how do we resolve this or what appointments should be on that? He seems to be almost at war with the General Assembly, and two-thirds of them are from his own party. So I, do you have any sense of what the motivating factor is for that lack of engagement? You know, I, I was there on the night he won the election. And I was there at his uh, celebratory party. Uh, there was a lot of energy in that room. And, and I can tell you, nobody's more surprised about this turn of events that, than I am. You know, I, I think that he came in with the expectation. He came in certainly with high expectations, as to be expected oh, when yeah. you have super majorities. And uh, I think that, uh, and I can't speak for my colleagues, but I, I think there is a sense, a broad sense, that we're all surprised that he's, he's taken such a hands-off approach. And quite frankly, a, the few interactions that we've had for, with him a lot of times have been adversarial. Uh, you know, going back to the pay raise debate last yep. year. And, you know, these are just uh, signs that um, I, 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 my door, as I said, is always open to change that. I've made that perfectly clear to the governor and his staff. We've tried uh, uh, repeatedly to reach out and build a bridge there. And, and really, we've, we've been rebuffed. And, and I know that I'm not the only senator that feels that way. So until that change is on the governor's side, you know, it is what it is. But like I said, the Missouri Senate is doing more work in a better manner than I think we have since I've been there. Does this extend to his department heads and other people in the administration? Are they responding when you call? Are they responding when senators or House members call to get facts on certain things? I mean, is it just I, the governor's office or is it his whole administration? I, I think I've gotten a great response, actually, from the directors of the different branches of the government. You know, uh, I'll give you an example. Steve Corsi over in Department of Social Services has been great. He's been very responsive. Uh, I don't think it extends. Sarah Steelman down in the office administration has been great to work with. She's been very responsive. The budgeting and planning office. Uh, I think that a lot of those branches uh, are doing really well and they've been very willing to work with us. I, I think there's a I think there's some sort of trouble in the governor's office staff. I, I think that may be aggravating part of the problem. And then certainly this that may be coming from the governor himself. I can't answer that question. Right. All I can do is say that uh, my door is always open. My door is always open. Uh, and I would welcome the governor uh, and his input to any of these conversations at any any point where he wants to engage. As a parting question, because I know you have an extremely busy schedule today. <laughs> Uh, one of the reasons why you haven't actually seen a lot of Democrats calling for Greitens resignation outwardly, even though they've been using it as like a billy club to attack people like Josh Hawley or in the Democratic <laughs> primary for county executive, uh, Democrats are attacking each other with with Greitens. There is some fear among Democrats that if Lieutenant Governor Parson becomes governor, he might be like 10 times more effective at passing uh, Republican priorities than the, the current governor. Now, I know that 
his ideology doesn't exactly match up with you on certain issues, the low-income housing tax credit one that we just mentioned. But what do you think of that? Do you think at this point it would be more beneficial for from a policy perspective, not necessarily a short-term political perspective, to have a change in leadership and have Parson be the governor instead of Greitens? Well, I'm, I'm holding out hope that the governor Greitens is going to start building the relationships regardless of the fallout from, from the scandals that are ongoing. I can tell you, uh, I'm a big Mike Parsons fan. Uh, you know, I've had more conversations with Mike Parsons than I have Eric Greitens about the tax plan. I think that's amazing. So I, I'm I'm certainly a fan of both of these individuals. Uh, I want them both to, to succeed. I have a lot of con- I have a lot of concerns about the ongoing investigation. You know, there there are increasing signs that some of the some of the uh, indictment in, uh, language may 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 be falling more on the side of a political witch hunt than uh, legitimacy, and that causes me great concern. I'm I'm watching that very closely. But you know, I'm a fan of both of those guys, and I need both of them to succeed. So uh, I think that the Republican Party is going to be in good hands either way. But certainly, uh, you know, I, my door is always open for Governor Greitens, and hopefully he can take advantage. Well, we just want to thank you for t- squeezing us into your busy schedule. I, I'm really glad, though, we were able to talk about your tax cut at length and in some detail, even though we could have probably talked about this for 70 minutes instead <laughs> of 32. I think it's sometimes good to go into depth in, in these things rather well, than just do sound Well, that's the point pipe. of the podcast. So how can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Sure. I'm at, at Bill Eigel uh, on Twitter, and you can reach my Facebook page at Bill Eigel on Facebook. That's where I'm always on my Facebook page. I'm always trying to do updates on the Facebook page. Thanks again for having me this morning and look forward to coming on the show again. For the fifth time, Joe, how can people follow you on Twitter? Okay, Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and I am letting everybody who's listening to this show know affirmatively that you will succeed. Have a great week, everybody. I guess I'm going to say Craig Mack with perfect time. You won't be around next year. My rap's too severe. Kicking my flavor in your ear. Here comes the brand new flavor in your ear. Time for new flavor in your ear. I'm kicking new flavor in your ear. Mac's brand new flavor in your ear. Craig Mack, 1,000 degrees. You'll be on your knees and you'll be burning, begging, please. Brother Freeze, man's in the studio.